You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Raytheon, protecting every side of cyber. Spyware, viruses, disinformation campaigns, those are just a few of the threats posed by malicious state actors, rogue hackers, and others. Our efforts to protect critical data and improve the country's cyber capabilities proceeding at a fast enough clip? On Wednesday, October 2nd, the Washington Post gathered technologists, government officials, security experts, and other leaders in cybersecurity to discuss these rapidly evolving issues. In this segment, Google's head of counter-espionage, Shane Huntley, joins fellow security experts to discuss cybersecurity threats that impact individual users and new methods for fending off adversaries. Let's listen. Hello again. Uh, my name is Joe Marks. As you probably remember, I wrote the Cybersecurity 202 newsletter. <laughs> and I am here with a great private sector panel. We have uh, Google's head of counter-espionage, Shane Huntley, director of cybersecurity at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, Eva Galperin, and senior researcher at Citizen Lab, uh, John Scott Railton. So it occurred to me as I was thinking about this panel, um, you guys all look at a vast array of bad people and bad organizations that are targeting the people you work with, from uh, criminals to uh, foreign governments to sometimes people's own governments and intelligence services and even stalkers, pe malicious people in your, in your life, stalkers and, and sometimes partners and exes. So I thought a good way to start was heading down and starting with Shane. Tell me who are, rather than what are, the, the, the main people that are causing problems for the people you're trying to protect online? Well, in my case, my team really focuses a lot, but not solely on government-backed threats against our users and against Google. And really what we're seeing these days is that pretty much every government or most governments are really engaged in this activity for espionage, for destructive reasons, for disinformation, and it's just growing over time. So internally we have this like big map where we color in all the different countries where we actually see a country that we believe is like activity we've seen it from. And year over year, there is less and less countries that are white and more and more countries <laughs> that are red. And really, you have to be a very, you know, a very small number of countries now are left white on my map. So it really is everyone. It's growing. And I think the sophistication is also growing between the the gap is closing between the high end and what was the kind of low end sophistication that that gap is growing. That it's, this has become more accessible. So we're seeing you know, more and more players from the Middle East, around the world, able to either build this capability, buy this capability. So day in, day out, we're seeing these users targeted. And are, are you still seeing you know, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea as the biggest threats? Or is it really democratizing, to use a very strange word there? It's always hard to say who's the biggest threat. It really depends who you are, right? Oh. So for the, those four are definitely four of the biggest players in this space. But as I said, it's a lot more broad. Like if you're somewhere in the Middle East, you might be targeted by your own government specifically. And we like equally warn all these users that we have this warning that we put out every month saying, we believe you're the targeted of government-backed attack. And to give you an idea of the scale, we warned 36,000 users last year that we believed that they were the form of some form of phishing or malware attack that we saw going to them. That's not compromised, that just means they were targeted. So that's sort of the, the, the sphere of what we're looking at on my team. And Eva, from your vantage point, working on digital rights and civil liberties, what are the groups you're most concerned about? 
Uh, well, I started out my work uh, really focused on activists, mostly activists outside of the United States, often in North Africa and the Middle East. And uh, over the last decade or so, my work has e expanded to get broader and broader and broader. So first we started seeing international activists being, uh, being targeted, then in um, we started seeing journalists being targeted, uh, human rights lawyers, scientists. Um, then in 2016, we experienced a, a tremendous spike in um, sort of domestic activists suddenly very interested in, uh, in their privacy and security. And we've really Can you seen expand on that a little bit? Who are the domestic activists? Oh, uh, we've, we've actually seen a lot of um, sort of uh, pro, um, of, of pro-choice organizations that are that are really concerned about their about their safety, uh, a lot of uh, civil liberties organizations, a lot of uh, uh, immigrant immigrant protection organizations are are really concerned, uh, and just immigrants in general, uh, in you know especially including you know legal immigrants in the United States are very concerned um, about uh, about their digital privacy and security. And I have, in some ways, an even bigger problem than Shane, in that Shane only needs to secure people's Google accounts. <laughs> only Google? <laughs> Just Google. And all their Android devices. Yes, and yes, when so they are on the worst, like, yeah. but every user in the world. And then, yeah, it's an easy job, Eva. <laughs> Things are getting contentious already. This is why you make the big bucks. Uh, but uh, the, the problem, the problem that I have is uh, is that people come to me and they don't just need to to secure the the Google environment, but also everything else about their lives and all of their other accounts and things which are not owned by Google, uh, which gets uh, somehow even more stressful. And I have fewer resources with which to do it. And then finally. Uh, my, in, in the sort of ultimate expansion of my work, I started looking at uh, the victims of domestic abuse. So it turns out that uh, most people uh, who are being spied on in their lives are not being spied on by governments or law enforcement. They are being spied on by, uh, by stalkers or by exes or by people with whom they are currently in an abusive relationship. And one of our biggest problems with uh, sort of building a threat model for that is that companies often assume when they're locking down devices that if you have the username and the password and access to somebody's phone, that you have legitimate access to the person's account. And uh, abuse often involves access to all of these things at once. So now we need to completely you know, rethink our, our threat models, just in case we did not have enough to worry about. Uh, just to stick on that for a second before we get yeah. to John, um, you made a big uh, address about this at the Kaspersky conference a couple of months ago. Uh, companies, including Symantec and McAfee, said they're going to start taking this seriously. They're going to start alerting people. Are companies getting better about this? And is it complicated? Because presumably there are some situations where apps like this uh, have legitimate purposes. Well, I, to begin with, I wouldn't want uh, Symantec and McAfee to get uh, credit that they don't deserve. Neither of them made a statement. Um, the companies that did make statements were uh, Kaspersky, Lookout, and uh, Malwarebytes. Mm -hmm. So currently we have you know, sort of three companies on board. And uh, right now, since uh, we're just now kicking off both uh, Domestic Violence Awareness Month and Cybersecurity Awareness Month, uh, and Halloween, mm -hmm. so just all the spooky <laughs> things at once. Um, 
We, we are really working on getting the anti-virus uh, industry all on the same page to take uh, these threats a lot more seriously. Are there legitimate uses for this stuff? It depends on what you mean as a legitimate use and whether or not you're just talking about like is it strictly legal? Um, often uh, this software is uh, violating the law, um, but the real question is the law where? What jurisdiction are you in? Uh, state laws are all different, federal laws are all different, people exist in, in different countries. Um, the place where I have decided to draw the line is uh, software which is uh, sold commercially and is designed to, uh, to fool the user into thinking it's not there. Uh, so if, for example, you are a parent and you are concerned about uh, where your children are going and you want to see their text messages and you want to know where they are and you want to do some parenting, that's fine as long as you don't feel the need to install this, uh, uh, this software on their device, which leads them to believe they're not being watched. Um, so I, I just to clarify, Semantic and McAfee came from a follow-up article I did who said they were working on it. But again, don't want to give them mm -hmm. credit that they don't deserve nope. if they have not done anything since then. Um, John. What should we be scared about? Hey, so it's an interesting question. Um, the Citizen Lab works with these like high-risk groups, kind of similar to what um, Eva has done. And I feel like our conclusion sounds a lot like what Shane has said, which is wherever we scratch, we find bad stuff. And I kind of think of it as like Neapolitan ice cream. Like the strawberry is like nation-state actors who've got like a development pipeline and like good STEM capability. And then your um, vanilla is like can't necessarily develop in-house, but can pay for it. Can you give us examples of that? Can you name names? Yeah, so like, for example, Citizen Lab has done work for years on the proliferation of um, what we call like nation-state spyware. So this is stuff made by companies that allege that they sell to governments only for the purposes of like um, tracking terrorists and child pornographers. In practice, it looks more like um, an international espionage um, set of technologies and they sell to countries like Saudi Arabia and Mexico who then uh, slosh around and use these things for targeting their own civil society groups. And that stuff often gets a lot of attention and press because maybe it involves like zero day vulnerabilities and other like sexy exciting stuff. But like the third flavor, which is chocolate and by far like the most overrepresented is the like my cousin knows computers approach to cyber espionage. <laughs> like it doesn't need to be fancy. Um, it just works, and this is because like human behavior is fucking unpatchable, right? <laughs> so uh, the same deception that worked 20 years ago will work again in different digital guises, which is what you know drives Shane team, Shane's team nuts. But it also is a big overlap between the stuff that Eva um, and we are concerned with, which is at the simplest level, and for like a fucking decade, we've seen, I'm, I'm so sorry, um, I'll stop. <laughs> um, we've, we've this seen, is the R-rated panel. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> Sorry, whoever is doing the moderation on this audio. Um, we've seen, I thought I would limit myself to one, but um, we've, we've seen uh, nation state actors using basically the same kind of spyware that abusive partners wind up using. And increasingly, like a lot of that problem space ends up um, in the hands of someone like uh, Shane and other device manufacturers and operating system manufacturers whose systems are still, you know, constantly locked in battle um, with those really simple technologies. And so, like, I don't know, I, I feel like one of the biggest problems that we face is that the entry cost is so stupid low mm -hmm. um, that anyone can do it. And 
it ends up looking a lot like a public health problem um, with all of the sort of behavioral complexity that comes from something where like people love using their devices um, and they're not gonna fundamentally change how they use those devices. The platforms that they use are not always designed in the most sort of like high risk focused ways, but we don't really know who the next like clutch of activists is gonna be. They have no idea who they are gonna be yet, right? And yet they're gonna be targeted over these platforms. People who are in a domestic situation that's gonna end up in some kind of like digital spousal abuse don't necessarily know when they get their Android phone that two years later, um, they're gonna have like a spook sharing their bedroom, right, fundamentally. So I don't know, it's a big problem. It is, so uh, to take one specific example, I think this is either vanilla or strawberry, lost the Neapolitan, but um, uh, Shane, Google worked on uh, exposing a very micro-targeted attack uh, with Apple devices that you guys didn't identify who the actor was. There has been reporting since then that says this was um, Chinese government-linked hackers who were targeting uh, the Muslim Uyghur minority. Um, John, you've even worked later and said they were also tar uh, targeting Tibet with this. Can you tell me... Probably all the five poisons got targeted. We just <laughs> know about the, um, the Uyghurs and the Tibetans. Yeah. So tell me... How common is something like this, and how concerned should we be about these really micro-targeted attacks? Well, um, I think what was really interesting about this attack, and I can't release too many more new details, we really did publish our research here, is was the fact that this is one example where our team has found zero-day exploits, which, and for those who don't... Can you explain what zero-day is? I was about to explain yeah, yeah. exactly what All that right. is. So a zero-day exploit is an exploit where most of the exploits out there, if you've patched your devices, you've installed all your updates, then you're actually protected because all the holes have been fixed in what's actually gone on. So really, they still work a lot because people don't update their devices, people don't patch. But what we consider like a zero-day exploit is the exploit there, there isn't a patch available. And that's what this was, which is one of, we tr treat this very seriously because there's not a lot a user can do in many cases that are against a zero-day exploit. Mm -hmm. So we have this policy, if we ever find one, and over the last 12 months, my team has actually found either five or six different zero-day exploits against different platforms. And this is with multiple different companies. And that policy is we tell the company, we help work with them to get it fixed, but we say that, you know, there's a seven-day deadline here. We don't, like, expand this out that you've got months. It's like, we're going to start telling people how to protect themselves within seven days. And the Apple case was one of these, and that's why this was such a sort of kind of attack. But again, this is the rarity, right? So it's actually somewhat um, the exceptional circumstance where we actually do see these zero-day exploits being used, and that's why we treat it so seriously. And I think we're having a really good effect of making it a lot harder to use these exploits. Um, and yeah, that's really the background of what that was. And then, you know, Project Zero did the complete analysis of the exploit, trying to understand the details of it. Because we really believe that learning more about these techniques, working out how to fix them, working out how to make sure these sort of bugs don't happen in the future is how we actually secure the entire sort of ecosystem in the world because this is, you know, a very micro-targeted threat and this is not how the biggest threat you're going to face. Like, you're going to generally be hacked because somebody's going to trick you for your password or somebody's going to trick you into installing something. But this really serious threat is one that we do have to take very seriously and something we're fighting. John? Yeah, so I think part of what's interesting about this case that just happened um, is, and part of why it's such fun drama, is how much trouble companies have with the public communication and narrative aspect of these cases, right? So Google didn't attribute got a lot of flack for it, um, later things did some form of attribution. And I feel like it's kind of an interesting space because we're putting a lot of emphasis on companies basically stopping nation states doing nation-statey surveillance stuff. 
but those companies have like lots of different incentives, lots of different public relations incentives, different markets. Um, and it's, I feel like there's a, a bigger problem, which is the pipeline that public and policymakers have for getting like meaningful, timely information about the full scope of the threats that they or other groups face is fundamentally constricted by the different incentives of the different uh, players. So for example, um, Shane said, what was the number for nation state warnings that you guys did? Uh, 36,000 lawsuits. 30, 36,000, um, which is great, right? Holy smoke, that's a, that's a meaningful number. But it's also still challenging. Like, for example, if I was to ask Shane, 36,000, how many from each country, right? Like, how many from each threat actor? Google <laughs> is limited in what they can say, and uh, completely reasonably. But at the same time, researchers and others we need to know that. We need to know who are the states that are the worst actors. We need to know how they're doing it. Users don't even know, right, when they get those um, warnings. So I think, yeah, we're in kind of a weird, we're in kind of a weird place. Um, in, some, in some sense, like, the other going dark problem is like information, including attribution, about threat actors and what they're really doing and where they're doing it. You, uh, go ahead. Okay, I'm going to be mean. Um, I promise not to swear, though. Um, <laughs> Nation state uh, targeting warnings uh, don't work. And this has actually been one of my like, bitter disappointments from the, from the last few years. I spent uh, many years going around talking about uh, the you know, threat of nation state actors and nation state spying. And one of the things that I did was I called on companies to give users these warnings so that they know, uh, they know to up their game. And then it turned out that often these warnings were too vague, uh, that they did not give the users enough information, that they just scared the pants off of the users and they didn't know what to do next. Um, or sometimes they would often, sometimes, often, um, on occasion, they would go in exactly the opposite direction where they would not believe the warning and believe that this is just a thing that Google does every once in a while to keep them on their toes. Uh, so I think that now is a good time for platforms to rethink the nation state warning and think about what kind of information you can give to users um, that they will actually act on and that will help to protect them in the future uh, instead of just scaring their pants off or getting to the point where you can no longer scare their pants off uh, and yeah. they have no pants. I would like, say, like, yeah. I, it's a slight defense <laughs> The, you know, the person who initially rolled out these warnings like way back in the day. Yeah, this is the big challenge. Like, how much can we communicate without revealing how we're detecting things because that causes, like if we give up our detections, then we can't protect future users. And how to actually in give changes to, cause the user to make change. We have got feedback, like some users definitely do secure things. I think we have come a long way in the last eight years. Like that I've been doing this, that, you know, when I started this, nobody believed in nation state threats. Now, you know, we're having these sort of conversations where everybody takes it as a given. If, if anything, it's becoming blasé to the whole threat. But when, you know, when I talk to election campaigns, when I talk to activists, people do care and believe about that there are nation state threats out there. I do think giving a warning sometimes is a wake up call to people. And we have seen some users, this is the mechanism of the, oh, I didn't think about it. Now I'm actually going to take some actions. We've measured that. Um, but ideally, yes, we do want users to take more action. I think there is a more research to go on to how to, in, how to make this more the default. But I also think that we as platforms and, and 
as everyone else in this sort of industry, we can't just put all the blame on the users as well, right? It's sort of like car safety. You can't just tell everybody to drive safer. You actually have to build safer cars. And I think we are trying to work very hard to build safer operating systems, to build more security by default, to make it so the user has to do some things themselves, but we can also do a lot for the user to help secure them. And it's interesting that you mentioned campaigns. I mean, it's, it's, it's organizations, not just users, that aren't able to do anything with this information. And yeah. DHS has run into the same problem where it's since 2016, They've been trying to get as much information as they can to, to campaigns, to state and local election officials. A lot of times they say, you know, what the heck can we do with this flood of information? We don't know uh, how to respond to that. Is there something in particular that, I guess we'll start with governments and then corporations, but like that government should be doing to improve the situation? I mean, I'll just take a freebie. Um, I feel like it's really great to have big think uh, thought-leading conversations about cybersecurity with a bunch of government folks. But the problem is, when they talk about cybersecurity, it's their show. And they like to think about cybersecurity issues as the great game, right? It's super exciting. And they play it with each other. And users always come second or maybe third. And the problem is, by volume, most of the bad stuff happening on the internet is happening to individuals who don't have anybody who really has their back and who have to depend on um, you know, the largesse and quality of teams like Shane's and others. But for the most part, like, their governments really don't have their back. Like The number of cases where Citizen Lab has gone to users and said, you've got this problem, or we worked with users, and like nothing happens, right? They have no meaningful recourse. It's remarkable, and I feel like there's a, an ethos here, and it's like, Everyone's watched videos online of people getting arrested in the US, and basically everybody who gets arrested has some version of like, wait, I know my rights, you can't, you know, I do that, right? They have that experience, like, I know my rights, you can't do this to me. Nobody ever says that or experiences that when they get a nation state warning, right? Nobody ever says that or experiences that when they're a victim of uh, phishing. And I feel like that's a huge problem, and it doesn't get changed by folks in government basically continuing to view cybersecurity as them playing with other states. Eva, is there some discrete thing that either government or industry can do to make the people you work with more secure? I get really suspicious when somebody says, is there something the government can do? <laughs> because I spend a lot of time protecting people from governments. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not here to come and tell you that governments and law enforcement are the good guys. And in fact, I'm really suspicious of giving them power. And uh, I'm very suspicious of any, uh, any remedy that involves asking the government uh, or law enforcement to somehow be better and rescue us from ourselves. Uh, I, I think that what we need to start doing is uh, really to start organizing as civil society. Uh, and there are kind of two ways to go about this. One is that the, the people who are, who are speaking truth to power, the journalists and human rights lawyers and people who get out and, um, and demonstrate in the streets need to have a you know, very solid threat model of uh, who's going after them and how and why. And as part of that involves the kind of work that I do and that, uh, and that John does over at Citizen Lab, which is writing reports about the kinds of threats that they face so that people can then do the right thing. Um, but the other half of that is the work that Shane does, uh, which is just making every, uh, everyone's communications private and secure by default so that you don't have to sit, uh, sit there and worry about what's going to happen when the government comes calling. Um, and then finally, uh, 
there's sort of the, the last group of people uh, who really often get pushed to the side, and that is you know, victims of domestic abuse. And they are, uh, they have the hardest threat model to deal with because you're, you're dealing with somebody who actually has physical access to your stuff. Uh, and I think that it is really up to the companies and the platforms to start thinking about uh, ways to deal with that particular threat model that they haven't before. Um, because uh, it, I get way more calls, I get way more complaints, and I get way more work than, than a single person can possibly do. Just before we go on quick, uh, we're taking audience questions over Twitter. If you'd like to uh, toss one in, we still have Great. time Nothing will go wrong. <laughs> uh, tweet them at using the hashtag post live, hashtag post live, and I will uh, try to get them to some of our guests. So John, you wanted to say something? I was going to say, so um, Eva makes a really interesting point about um, changing threat models. And I feel like one of the things that we see a lot of in our research is device compromise, as ever is, right? But I feel like the new form of this, or at least what we're seeing, is more of a smash and grab approach, even from sophisticated actors, where they get on a device and they grab logs and then they go. And so one of the challenges there is like, man, you know, the chat apps and so on that we use end up putting a bunch of stuff on devices. So I was super excited to read yesterday, as I'm sure some of you folks have. It looks like WhatsApp has begun to experiment with ephemerality. Did folks see this? There was like a report yesterday saying that they're starting this with group chats. I feel like that stuff is really important because the number of cases that I've looked at where threat actors have gone on and then gotten all their juice because they spent 20 minutes on a person's phone or laptop and pulled everything is huge. And it also addresses some of the issues around intimate partner surveillance because it means that if you get a device at time A, you don't get A minus you know, one, two, and three years worth of personal stuff. So I feel like that kind of experimentation is, is really good and important. But I also feel like, and I, I worry that there's a national security narrative right now around the importance of access to secure and encrypted communications being um, you know, pulled by, um, frankly, a, you know, a scary narrative around um, dark players who use bad things for uh, pornography and terrorism. And that's, that's sort of rebounded since 2014. It's really and there's a Justice recently. Department Child conference terrorism. on it on Friday, um, where both this the FBI director <laughs> and Attorney General are going to speak. Terrorism. Shane, yeah. Yeah. You, you wanted to talk about this? Yeah, I, I think the encryption debate never seems to die, unfortunately. <laughs> I, like, you know, we're against the back doors. I think the uh, the argument, the the argument here is like trying to balance the law enforcement. Like everybody thinks it's this magical solution where we can like, you know, only give access to everybody's communications to the so-called good guys, but keep all the bad guys out. That like, we really have to, you know, as mentioned here before, you know, create secure platforms because we really have to weigh the risks here. And the risks here of just having these open platforms created, even if they're created to be open or backdoors for supposedly good reasons, is just way too high to kind of run. Why, why is that? Can you give the 30-second the explanation? That, that having a backdoor to encryption... Uh, means you don't have encryption. Because, you don't have one, it don't have encryption. Two, like, it means somebody has to secure that backdoor, right? Mm -hmm. So, like... Even like who holds that magical backdoor key and who do you think can keep that key for secret? And I've never heard any really solid arguments about, okay, what happens if the secret backdoor key is stolen? Mm -hmm. What happens if some insider risk at some telecommunications yeah. provider or manufacturer gets access to it? This is just creating some other new mechanism where people can have their data stolen in some massive way. And is this a debate inside the cybersecurity community? 
I feel like it keeps coming from without, right? Every couple of years, um, a certain set of folks who are struggling with very legitimate law enforcement challenges are like, you know what, let's take another crack at this uh, <laughs> encryption piñata here, and maybe we've got the case that'll, that'll do it this time, right? Um, I think within our world, it's fair to say, most of us believe for a mix of, maybe it's ideology, maybe it's um, you know, sort of historical experience or suspicion, um, that this is probably going to result in bad things if we go down that place. And we come at it from different reasons. Like, my argument is we have no idea what the next couple of years look like in most countries, right, if we've learned anything in the past few years. And we have no idea what happens when um, capricious folks with access to the ability to request that data decide to do so um, in ways that um, their underlings have trouble refusing, right? And that itself is a good argument for the importance of encryption. So before we run out of time, I want to ask, Big picture, is there any light on the horizon for things getting better uh, for the average person or for highly targeted people uh, in the next five years? Yes. I think there's light. I, I think there's light at the end of this tunnel. Uh, maybe I'm the optimist in the room. Tell us, Shane. Is the, so, one, what we're we're know. is the attackers, are, the attackers are having to work harder, right? So, yeah. the sort of the, the, the dumb attacks of three years ago are now just being blocked. Like the rate of sort of phishing and malware and other sort of things being blocked by platforms, by systems is increasing. So, attackers are having to work harder, which is a good thing. We're seeing these bugs being killed at a faster rate. And we're also seeing that there is more things users can do. We have, you know, things like advanced protection that if you really want to defend your Google account, you can sign up with security keys, all these other sort of mechanisms that the legal Levers are there for somebody who really does want to get these extra protections, which, I'm, to be honest, I don't think was there four or five years ago, that there was not as much you should do. But I think I, I want people to walk away not thinking that it's all hopeless, there's nothing you can do, you're going to get hacked, so give up. Where what we really do see is that if you do take some protections and the platforms work at it, you trust the platforms that are doing a good job here, then you know you, your risks run a lot. You, you're a lot more secure and you actually have pretty good odds. Of course, there's the bolt out of the blue, zero day, super targeted stuff that, that might hit you the same way like, you know, getting hit by lightning does in the real world. But in the real world, you should probably be worried about like, getting fit and not having a heart attack, not about lightning strikes. You should also be more worried about the basic stuff. And I think that overall security level is increasing. Yeah. Uh, Eva, did you want to? Sure. Uh, so I'm going to take a dissenting view. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> surprise. Um, Yes, on, to some extent, some of our accounts and some of our platforms are becoming safer and we have more options and that is great. Um, but our attack surface is also uh, expanding exponentially uh, with, with every passing year. We are filling our homes and our offices with, uh, with microphones and cameras that are extremely insecure. <laughs> and that are often manufactured by companies uh, that don't have security and privacy um, in, in, you know, as a particularly high value, uh, and that certainly don't think about uh, nation state level APTs uh, in their threat model, and they don't think about law enforcement. Uh, for example, there is a, a great deal of argument about the installation of ring doorbells in neighborhoods and sort of their, uh, their partnership with, the, with local law enforcement. Uh, and uh, Amazon continues to insist that this actually cuts down on crime, uh, whereas the, uh, it, the research seems to indicate that, uh, that filling your neighborhood with cameras that everybody can see does not actually cut down on crime very much.
uh, it just uh, increases the amount of surveillance that you have. I just, uh, real quick, before we run out of time here, I, I don't want to go through a, a panel without talking about election security. Big picture, uh, how confident should we be, do you guys think, from, an outs from a, a private sector perspective about the 2020 contest? Ooh, my observation is every time we have looked at um, elections outside of the U.S. in the past couple of years, so every time we've scratched, we found all kinds of players, domestic and foreign, mucking around in those elections. I cannot think of an election that's happened in the past few years where there hasn't been experimentation and muckery. And the biggest thing that bugs me said is muckery. that- said muckery, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> um, the biggest thing um, that, 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 that freaks me out is that um, so many of our analogies and the way that we're talking are still um, you know, by the, the virtue of the 2016 narrative and access, it's just pulling our intuitions back towards that. And I think that the problem space just looks really different. Um, and I'm not at all convinced that we've got a good handle on it right now. Guys, quick. I, I wouldn't say we've got a handle on it. I would say that unlike 2016, and I went through the 2016 things, that there is a lot more people working this problem. There are a lot more people taking this more seriously. The, the government's taking it more seriously, industry, people working together. And it is like the top priority of everyone. So, you know, watch this space to see how it plays out. But if it does, if anything does happen, it's not going to be due to a lack of effort by the platforms or anyone else, because mm -hmm. I think people are taking these threats seriously. Uh, that's all the time we have. Thank you, everyone. Please hold on for our final segment. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.